0: Continuing our never-ending journey to improve the lighting setup. I've actually been consulting a few people. Basically, it, it boils down to I'm probably going to need a new camera and new space, so I've done what I can. I actually have brand new lights. I literally just, I was installing them while this episode was playing, and while I was taking notes. I don't know if it's obvious. Uh, the, the maneuverability is certainly a lot better. So, you know, if nothing else, my own physical comfort is increased. We'll see if the heat situation gets better or worse because, I mean, you know how much light these things generate, right? Yeah. So, let's talk about this episode. Written by Gilbert Ralston, who has written, Ralston, excuse me, who has written nothing else in Star Trek, of course. Although Mr. Kuhn, naturally, did a rewrite on this. I don't know how much is his, and I don't care. Michael Forrest, I want to talk about him briefly. He is the gentleman who plays Apollo. I wonder how many of you know that name. I'm just curious. I don't I don't blame you if you don't. I didn't recognize the name. But I, when I looked up his, uh, his track, his career record, the man has done a lot of anime. Usually medium to small roles, but he is in a fairly large amount of stuff. He's in Akira, he's in Big O, uh, he's done a lot of Gundam stuff. He's all over the place. So you might have heard him. Obviously that was a little bit after this. And Fred Steiner actually does a lot of the music in this one, too, which would be reused for several episodes to come, which is yet another example of that happening. I also bothered to look up how to pronounce Adonais, just in case it came up. It's never mentioned in the whole episode. So they're on scanning, and there's no intelligent life, which is considered unusual. I, I wanted to comment on that briefly, because... Well, that's kind of what we sort of assume from Trek and and a lot of sci-fi in this era. Hell, even in modern era in general, don't we? We don't think we're going to go out and find a massively empty galaxy. We think we're going to find a whole bunch of other life forms, kind of similar to us. I mean, have you ever seen the full list of every sentient and sapient life form in Star Trek? It is a gargantuan list. And of course it is. It's been being built up for, you know, 40 years or whatever. But it's just interesting to think about that. It's become so ordinary that they actually mentioned that this is breaking the curve. Like, this is just weird and off, the fact that there's not sentient and sapient life around here. Like, what the heck, guys? What are we doing wrong? Just funny to think about. Scotty, of course, is massively fl- uh, flirting with Miss... Uh... I'm staring at my own pronunciation guy. It was Polymus. Palamas, Palamas. That was it. That's how they pronounced it. Palamas, <laughs> Miss Palamas, and okay, that's fine. You know, everyone except Kirk can flirt on the show. That's 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 actually an established thing. Kirk's married to his ship, and everyone else can just do whatever, with one interesting exception. Scotty mentioned. Well, McCoy mentioned that Scotty thinks he's the man for her. Okay, she's never seen again, by the way. But more importantly, she mentions that she's not sure if he's the man for her. Now, if you don't really get why I'm bringing this point up, well, that's fine, but the implication here is marriage, an actual legitimate union, not just, hey, it's, you know, you're hot, let's go have some sex every now and again, or let's go date, or let's just be friends and also make out, or whatever layer you particularly want to use there. No, the idea is that this is intended to be something a little bit more permanent. Okay, that's fine. Then, then, well, Uh, Pretty soon she'll be leaving the service. And and Kirk says, yep, I don't really think of it as just losing an officer, but gaining... Actually, I'm just losing an officer. Hold up. Why does she have to leave the service in order to be romantically connected to Scotty? Now, I know what you're going to say, because you've seen Balance of Terror, where it's mentioned also that, I forget her name in that episode, Miss Tyler's, I think, is, is also going to leave the service pretty shortly after getting married to Lieutenant, I forget his name, but he died in that episode. Why is that a thing? I mean, we all know the rules about, you know, uh, rules. We all know the, the concept of don't have a relationship in the workplace, and there's lots and lots and lots and lots of good reasons to do that. But why is it just sort of suddenly kind of a thing where one of them will bow out of the service, whereas the other one will not, and of course it's the woman both times. I mean, you can answer whatever you want here. I, but in all honesty, I can't come up with a good answer for this one. At the most, I think they'd try to split them up so they don't work on the same ship. But even that just kind of raises an eyebrow on that one a little bit, doesn't it? And there are plenty of examples in more modern Trek, uh, of course referring to the TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise era, of people who are ro- romantically connected working on the same ship and it's fine. So, what's the issue here? I'm actually curious. Again, if anybody out there can come up with either an official answer or, far more interestingly, a headcanon answer, I'd be curious to know what you, you have to say on this one. Anyways, then a giant hand comes out of space, and uh, Kirk suddenly takes out his Chicote handbook and says, okay, let's see here. So, it looks like I'm being threatened by something, so I'm going to very, very, very slowly react to it, comment on it, slowly react to it, and then... After that's done, I'm going to do nothing. I liked Robert Beltran, and I think that there were a couple of decent scenes for Chakotay in Voyager, but good lord, that man. (laughs) So they just stand around. When they finally decide to flee, it is way too late. This then leads to Apollo being like, Hey, what's up? Hi. How are things? Kirk is like, Okay, look, I'm willing to talk to you if you let go. Apollo says, no, I will punish you by threatening to destroy your entire ship of 430 people. Uh Overreact a little bit much? But I want to point out that the, the second thing that he does, and the first establishment we have for Apollo as a character is, no, screw you, you're doing it my way, and I'm going to threaten you with bodily harm otherwise. He literally he rolls Intimidate and backs it up by actually injuring. This is, if you're paying attention worse than Trelane was in every way in terms of the escalation in terms of the bodily threat in terms of his overall attitude Trelane was that wonderful you know never grew up adult right who just legitimately didn't understand and was acting like he was just playing with some kids in the playground as I pointed out thanks to the wonderful performance by uh, that guy Campbell I think by contrast, Apollo is. I am the great and almighty. You will bow utterly before me because I am infinitely superior to you. So Kirk is just like Wookie, okay. and once again we have godlike aliens. Oh my goodness! This is just getting silly at this point. We got godlike aliens, um, and it turns out this is actually funny. He's a, he's he's a total jackass because of course he is. Um, no sad faces. I've just threatened you with death, but no sad faces. This is a, this is a good day. Now, what's funny is I, I jotted down something next in my, it's literally my next bullet point. It says, So the Greek gods were aliens who, you know, godlike aliens who were reality photoshoppers because we do establish they do need tech and informate in and, and a power source to operate. In this case, the temple is the one in this one. So reality photoshoppers, not reality warpers. Either way, He also mentions, uh, you know, I I mentioned this idea and the concept of how this is yet another example of godlike aliens who have interacted with Earth in the past, which is not the first or last time this will show up. (sighs) The reason I'm bringing this up here in this strange way is because they don't actually reveal that for quite a bit further into the episode. I don't know if I just remembered that, because I don't have a lot of strong memories about this episode, or if I just deduced that very, very quickly, and the episode just took a little while to get there. I'm not sure which. Take 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 whichever one. I'm not trying to brag, it's just... This episode has some weird construction. Good execution. Good acting, good presentation, surprisingly good effects for the time. The message is a little bit tired now, but I have to remind myself that there was nothing really wrong with it at the time. You know, the, the idea being a superior being has showed up and demanded that you kneel, and your response is, no... Why? Well, the idea being that modern man is substantially less inclined to kneel, simply because his understanding of of the universe in general has improved. Thus Kirk's overall impression, I'm not going to kneel before you, we have outgrown you. Here's the weird thing, though. Let's assume for a moment that Apollo is a legitimately benevolent energy being, a reality photoshopper, right? How many people do you think would willingly serve him just in exchange for him, you know, using his powers to help them out? Like, he, ma- he mentions, you know, I demand uh, loyalty, tribute, and worship. and In response, he offers life in paradise. So that's not a terrible trade. Now, I wouldn't take that, admittedly. But I'm curious how many others would just be like, yeah, alright. In fact, this whole thing started reminding me more and more of Forgotten Realms. Specifically, you know, the, the D&D setting. My, my well, I wouldn't want to say my favorite deity setting, but the one I'm most familiar with. I did a whole lore run on it, for God's sakes. In that setting, the deities, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a joint deal kind of a thing. A deity does have power within Forgotten Realms, but that power is limited and hampered by the political infrastructure of the deity web because there are lots and lots and lots of deities in, in the hundreds of range, if not thousands. And all of them have their own domains and their own abilities and their own... It's a a whole political infighting thing, which I love, by the way. But more to the point, they there's lots of powerful beings in Forgotten Realms, any one of which could be like, you must worship me in exchange for power. So the deities have to actually give in order to take. This is further amusing because thanks to some stuff, which I'm not going to go into right now, the deities in Forgotten Realms have to eat worship. It is their food. It's their sustenance. The more worship and the more worshippers they have, the stronger they are. The less they have, the weaker they are. And if they if they just lose all their worship and if, they, and if all of the worshippers die out or just the whole thing ceases, they can actually die simply from what is effectively starvation. Sound familiar? You'd see why I was thinking about this the whole time as I was going through this episode, because that's the idea. You depend on it, but you can't just you can't just demand it. You have to offer something in return. Now, by accounts, Apollo does offer that. Here's the catch. He's a jackass. Who's evil? I have no problem saying that. Remember what the very first scene is? I I mentioned that. What's the first thing he does? Grabs the ship and then threatens them. Now, I want to remind you, what Kirk asked was very minor. Could you please let go of my ship so then we'll talk? And Apollo's response is, Nuh-uh! Squish! And that was his response to that. I'm sorry, what? This is also something relevant to keep in mind, because this is recurrent throughout the whole episode. In fact, uh, McCoy uh, talks about this. and I, He is capricious, which is a wonderful word for it. <laughs> I, uh, these are my people. Here we go. I found the quote. These are my people to love, cherish, and destroy at my will. So you can see he has the mentality of a typical CEO. Which is not the kind of person that a lot of people would willingly decide to serve, right? I mean, I'm sure there's some. But you can see how he's hurting his own market here. And I want to keep that in mind, too. Because then he starts actually attacking and hurting people for the horrible crimes of questioning him and doubting him. Do note that the crew has done nothing to really provoke him. That's actually important to keep in mind. He is absolutely the antagonist here. And the villain. And then he zaps J- uh, <laughs> Doon, excuse me, that is to say, uh, Scotty. Side note, I actually read this in the Knitpecker's Guide, which I actually had been reading alongside with this. The, so for this, you know what, James Doohan is actually missing a finger. And they went to extensive lengths back in TOS to not show that for some reason. I'm not sure why. I mean, he's an engineer. What's the issue here? But they missed a golden opportunity in this episode, because, and I agree with uh, the author's what is the author of this book's name? Mr. Farron's uh, conclusion here. And the idea that they could have used the shot where he gets hit and the phaser basically blows up in his hand as an excuse to say that's where the injury comes from and now we don't have to hide it anymore. But no, it would take until, I think, Star Trek II? I'm not sure about that. I know it's in the film's era when they finally were okay with showing the fact that he was missing a finger. It's interesting to think about. So, then we see the most famous dress in Star Trek history, and I'm not actually making that up. That dress has literally been worn outside of Trek, uh, in, a, in a, at a at a ball kind of a thing, which, I, I, it's not a ball, but it was an event that I can't remember the name of right now. But it was also worn in another show, and it's pretty much the thing that you you find, if you look up Mr. Theiss and his costume work, that's one of the first things you're going to see. And it's no wonder, because it's a bit of a marvel of engineering. From the way it's constructed, from from the notes about it, it kind of attaches at the hip, and then the part that goes over her chest is only held in place by the weight of its own attachment to the cape, which trails behind her. It is astonishingly flimsy looking. I don't know how actually flimsy it is. I I don't know. I have no way of knowing that. She doesn't show any girly bits in the episode. But I don't know if that's just because of editing or because it was well-designed enough that it looks a lot flimsier than it is. I don't actually care for it personally. I prefer kind of curved lines sort of a thing, or more of a flow. This is just kind of a, a Greco thing she's wearing, which I suppose is the idea. You know, just the the over-the-thing the, over the, the thing, toga look, whatever you want to call that. I don't know what that's actually called. I don't know anything. What I do know is that Kirk then reprimands Scotty very severely. It's like, look. Now, you're probably thinking, Laura, why are you bringing that up? Of course he's reprimanding Scotty. Scotty is just acting gaga, for Miss uh, Palamas this entire episode, and it's like, yeah, that's not really the problem. In fact, it's not even a problem. He reprimands Scotty very harshly, very severely, by words, not physically striking him or hurting him or or threatening to injure him. Then he expresses his legitimate concern over Scotty and wants to make sure that Scotty's okay. Now, if you're wondering why I'm bringing that up, it's because it is in direct contrast to Apollo, who multiple times in this episode mentions that he will be a father figure. He wishes to be a father to you. That comes up at least three times I can think of off the top of my head. Right at the beginning, and then when he mentions his big spiel, and then towards the end, I would have been a father to you. Oh, actually, she brings it up too. So that's four times it's brought up there, right? And yet, Kirk's approach is substantially more fatherly, whereas what Apollo is, is a typical CEO. And, I, and I'm and i kind of joking with that, but I'm kind of not. Again, McCoy's comment, he is capricious. It takes so little to piss him off. And his mood swings all over the place from, I am benevolent and happy to, I will damage and destroy you, at the drop of a hat. I wouldn't be surprised if he was literally bipolar, or whatever the alien equivalent thereof is. So this is not a fatherly figure. Meanwhile, up on the ship, Spock is actually being pretty awesome. Once again, we have the B-plot, which it's becoming more and more common. I think this is when the A-plot, B-plot thing really kind of became vogue, season two of TOS. Uh, anyway, so Spock's up on the ship trying to fix things. You notice the B-plot is directly tied into the A-plot, which, as I've said many times, is how that should be. And it's mostly about him trying to figure out what's going on and convince Uhura hey, screen time for Uhura, that she can actually work through this. You'll notice also Chekhov actually gets several decent lines at several points in this episode, because he's down below and figures out the whole power source thing. So I'm I'm just pointing this out because you can see how Season 2 is at least trying. I, I hate to keep showing my work, but that is my nature. Uhura works in the comms, and then there's this wonderful scene where he's like, oh, the other gods have died. Or No, excuse me, she says, the other gods have died. She says, no, not died, not as you know it. He then describes death to her. <sighs> just just say they died, dude. It's not hard. What happened was they ran out of nourishment and food because they didn't have any worshippers left. Sound familiar? And so they drifted themselves on the wind and in his own words reached a point of no return. Yeah, it sounds a lot like died to me. Jackass. Uppity elitist prick, which is another reason I don't like him. I will admit the actor Michael Forrest adds to him. It it does, his charisma and presentation does add to what would otherwise be an absolutely aggravating character. Oh my gosh. But this then leads to The Kiss! I'm totally in love with you. You notice this is their second scene together. At least with Edith Keeler, a month and a half had passed. Why does she love him? She states she does. I have to take her at her word. Why does he love her? I mean, okay, no, no, actually, him loving her makes perfect sense. It's the first woman he's seen in five millennia. Yeah, I know. He <clears throat> loves her. I'm pretty sure any woman who came down he would have that reaction to. Then uh, then they try to provoke him to weaken him. And Palamis is like, no, I will stop you. And it's just like... I... And notice that he does get weaker. This is probably because his stores are low. Because he hasn't had worship in 5,000 years. He's probably barely holding on, if we're being honest which is, of course, when the B-plot comes back in and they manage to punch through the, the hand and destroy the thing, and all sorts of fun stuff happens. I want to jump in here, though, quick. Why does she get into this guy? He's not exactly a con. Uh, okay, actually, never mind. Now that I say it out loud, he's a lot less mentally and emotionally abusive than con. So, okay, I can totally see why she's into him. Here's the thing. The way she talks is uh, terrifying. He wants what's best for us. He's so kind. Remember this whole episode we've seen how, I'm going to use that word one more time, capricious he's been. Or how about vicious? Or bullying? Or how about childish? I think that applies too. This guy has been a violent bully this entire episode. He's so kind. He just wants what's best for all of us. And put those two things side by side and you see just how kind of unpleasant and creepy this whole thing is. Ultimately, the more I looked into this episode, the more I dissected it, the more I'm just like, you know what, 60s. We just need a stamp. Plonk, 60s. All right. Moving on. This then leads to the storm scene. I mentioned the effects in this episode are actually quite good, and they are. The storm scene is astonishingly well done. They were so limited in what they could do. They had this tiny, tiny set. This dinky little thing. And they just zoom the camera in and focus it kind of up and down. And they also do several good things with trying to make it seem like he's growing big or doing the lightning bolt. It's actually impressive effects. And I don't even just mean the touched-up remastered version. This is one of those weirdly good episodes that uses its effects well. So credit to them. Certainly better than Cat's Paw. So then the episode ends and everyone's like, oh, poor Apollo. He cries, oh, I would have loved you. I would have loved you all. But now I must go. There's no more Root for God's. He fades away, and he dies, because that's what it is. Why is the episode trying to make this jackass out to be sympathetic? Even Kirk is like, Ah, maybe we could have gotten some laurels for him. You are the one who was most opposed to him, and with good reason. Don't give me that crap. What's with this out-of-nowhere-he-was-truly-the-greatest-enemy-was-man just out-of-nowhere-kind-of-random-thing? No, screw him. If Apollo had walked up and said, Hey, so... I need worshippers. I can give you, like, a good life if you do so. And the crew would have been like, well, no. And then maybe in desperation and fear, because he's literally starving to death, then he tries to force the issue. And throughout the whole thing, rather than being imperious and elite, he comes across more as someone who is going mad from hunger. And then by the end, they have to kill him because they can't give him what he wants because they don't have food to give, continuing the metaphor then, okay, you can have your sympathy. In fact, I think that would make a much better episode now that I'm saying that out loud. And he's just a jackass. And he's dead. Moving on. Nevertheless, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this one. <laughs> Sorry, I, you may have noticed I was doing this earlier. As I mentioned I'm rearranging the lights. Well, that means Wave here has nowhere to go, so I just kind of Had to keep him here somewhere. Did you know that there are studies that show that having a pet on camera increases? No, I'm I'm just messing. I mean, that's no treat. That's a real thing. I'm I'm just messing with you. Am I messing with them? Okay. Okay, do me a favor and wave for me. Wave.